And we've been studying uh, some things which are called the doctrines of grace, some truths in the scriptures. And forgive me, I drove all the way here with my computer glasses on. And uh, Carol has gone home to get my right glasses. So halfway through, somewhere in the middle here, we're going to change glasses. But um, so I have to take these on and off or kind of squint over them and look at you. Uh, but we're, we're studying the doctrines of grace. And I just want to add a little PS to that first one, which is the doctrine of who we are by nature. And that's the doctrine of total depravity. That's one of those TD doctrines, total depravity. And you get this picture, and it is a true picture, how bleak things are for us in a way, how bad is our condition and our situation. And it's really hopeless when we consider ourselves and who we are in and of ourselves. But, you know, that's only part of the picture. And I want to add just a little PS to give another TD doctrine, and that is the doctrine of true dignity. Men, boys and girls are made still in God's image. The image is defaced. Yes, it's twisted. It's distorted. But you think of those little children and so, uh, so dear and so uh, cute. Uh, yes, my grandchildren. And yet so depraved. And it comes out. Little sinners, cute little sinners. But don't forget the other side. They are made in God's image. And they need to be taught who they are. That they have a soul. That they are uh, made to worship God. That they are made to follow Him. And that to destroy God's image is to attack God Himself. And that's why the penalty for murder is, the ca is capital punishment. He who kills man is in a sense attacking the image of God. And so, total depravity, yes. But don't forget the other TD, true dignity. There is value to human life because men, women, boys, girls, they're made in God's image. But then the second thing we considered was the doctrine of unconditional election. That's where we were last Lord's Day. And we consider the fact and the meaning of election to pick or choose out of a group. And especially when we come to salvation, that God chooses some out of this whole horde of humanity from eternity past to be his own. And we saw the basis of it. It's not foreseen faith. It's not good works, good character. It's not that God chose people that he saw in ahead of time that, well, he's going to choose me, so I'll choose him. It's just the good pleasure of his will. According to Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And so now we're going to come this morning to answer some objections. And this doctrine, as, as I first heard it, I remember I told you the story this brother shared with me, total depravity, I didn't have a problem with that, <clears throat> unconditional election, and I said, no, wait a minute, that's just not fair. Uh, this doctrine arouses in human hearts opposition, antagonism. Uh, wait a minute, is, is the response, the natural response of the human heart, even, even for some who are converted by nature. It's something that arouses opposition. So one of the 
objections is, well, yeah, okay, there, there's this word election in our Bibles. We can't dispute that fact. But, but the word election is, is used in Romans chapter 8, uh, according to foreknowledge. Let's look at the text. And here's the objection that is raised, and it's raised really in connection with this text. Romans 8 and verse 29. Going back to verse 28 is a statement of sovereignty. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if we just pause there for a moment, it's a statement of absolute sovereignty. God causes not some things, not the big things, not things unless, you know, the devil somehow opposes his plan, uh, but he causes all things to work together for good. And if there were one exception, one little thing that was outside of God's control, then he couldn't work all things together for good. God works all things together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. There's that golden chain that starts with predestination. But they say, aha, look back at verse 29. God's foreordination to salvation begins with foreknowledge. And so the objection runs something like this. Well, it, it, God elects, God foreordains, God predestines those whom he foresees are going to choose him. He foreknows this fact about them. And so as he is omniscient in his knowledge of everything that's going to take place, he sees ahead of time, uh, well, brother, uh, Mr. X and Mrs. Y, uh, they're going to choose me, so I think I'll choose them. I'll elect these people. And I remember as a young Christian in the church I grew up in, or one of those in New Jersey, the one that we moved to in New Jersey, uh, this verse was read. And one of the ladies in the church who would have been regarded as a pillar, one of those uh, women who was always there and uh, always respectable, very respectable Christian woman, she responded, this was in a prayer meeting that this verse was read, she said, yes, but uh, that, that means that God foresaw that they would choose him, and so he elected them, he predestined them, doesn't it? And the pastor said, yes, that's right. And I thought to myself, okay, all right, that, that sort of, I'll go along with that, because that gets me out of this saying that God, you know, is pulling strings, and we're just robots or puppets here which I didn't want to think about that way. And so just swallowed that hole and gobbled it down. And that was there when I heard this uh, unconditional election idea presented by my friend in college. Well, but this is, here's this objection. Here's this answer. Well, God predestines, yes, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll let God do that. But he does it according to what he knows already that we're going to do. And so it's kind of like an after-the-fact predestination. Well, what, what do you think? What does God's word say about this? Is that meet uh, a careful scrutiny of the passage? Well, let's consider what knowledge means in the Bible. Whom he foreknew. 
whom he foreknew. And we're going to look just briefly at the use of the word know, even in the Bible. Let's go back to Genesis 18. Because foreknowledge means, okay, it means knowing ahead of time, knowing beforehand. But what does it mean in the Bible to know? For God to know something, of course, he knows everything. But when it's used in this kind of a context, what, what, what's the connotation? What is it implying? What is it saying? When we go back to Genesis chapter 18, <coughs> excuse me, beginning in verse 17, this is what we find as God speaks of Abraham. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now, the word in verse 19, for I have chosen him in my version, uh, literally is the word to know, for I have known him, for I have known him that he may command his children. It's interesting that this translation, this version, New American Standard, takes that word to know and translate it to choose. Because you see, in the Bible, to know is something intimate, especially when it's talking about relationships. Of course, you can know facts, you can know things, but when it's talking about people, Abraham, Adam knew his wife. Well, that's pretty intimate. She conceived and bore a son. To know implies an intimate, especially when it's speaking of relationships. And here, God with Abraham, there's an intimate relationship between them. Let's look at Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, another use of this Hebrew word to know. Hosea, Joel, Amos chapter 3. Word, which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only, and my version puts it, have I chosen, again, a curious translation, because it's literally, you only have I known among all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. This special relationship entails special responsibilities and therefore consequences to a violation of the relationship. You only have I known there's a special... Now, pause. Does God know other nations on the earth? Does God know about them, where they live, and the extents of their habitations, the boundaries of their... Uh, their borders? Does God know all of these facts? Does God know all about them, in fact? All the hairs on their heads, even? He does. But then why does he say to the people of Israel, the sons of Israel, he says, you only have I known, because there's a special relationship involved with the sons of Israel, which God does not have with the other nations on the earth. They're his special people. You only have I known. And so uh, let's just look at a couple other 
passages. Um, while we're here, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Let's go back to Hosea 13 and verse 5. So just a few pages back to Hosea 13 and verse 5. Going to verse 4, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Again, talking about this special relationship with the sons of Israel. And you are not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. Now the word there, cared, is new. I knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. I brought you out of Egypt. I had this special relationship with you, even in the wilderness. Yes, I loved you. I cared for you. I had chosen you. You were not to know, to have any relationship with any other God except me. And so, again, let's, one, one more verse to get this Old Testament concept of, uh, of God's knowledge Psalm 37. Now here's a, a more of a fact implied, not just persons that God knows, but things about them. Look at Psalm 37 and verse 18. Psalm of David, speaking of the, the blessing of the people of God, verse 18. Let's go back to verse 16. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows. And there's that word for knowledge in the Hebrew. The, world, the Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. He knows their days. Again, okay, he knows them, but he knows these details about them. And he's in control of those things on their behalf. He knows them. He cares for them. So to summarize, in the Bible, this word know has, of course, it, it can be used in general, knowing things, knowing facts. But when it speaks of a relationship of a special people, the, the word implies, conveys the idea of loving and choosing. Uh, you are a holy people to the Lord your God, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you're more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest, fewest of the people. So there's this intimate relationship. Now, let's put this into uh, perspective all right, again, the word foreknow. Okay, now we take this word know and add the idea of knowing ahead of time. Uh, in Acts 26 and verse 4, let's look there. It can mean, of course, to know things ahead of time. Know facts ahead of time. Paul uses this word to speak of what the Jews knew about him when he's giving his defense to Agrippa. He says, so then, Acts 26, 4, all Jews know the manner of my life from my youth up. 
which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. They have known about me previously. They have foreknown me. Yeah, okay, they, they knew about him way back when. So there is a knowledge of things beforehand. Uh, there's another no, uh, use of this word in 2 Peter 3.17 to talk about knowledge aforehand. And we're going to wrap this up. We're going we're to see where we're going with it in just a minute. 2 Peter 3.17 Peter has warned them. The Lord is not slow about his promise. The Lord is coming. Things will be destroyed with intense heat. And then he writes in verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that people will wrest the scriptures to their own destruction, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Knowing this beforehand, being warned ahead of time. So you know some things ahead of time. Knowing this beforehand. So this can be used to speak of that. But this word foreknow, it's more than just knowing something ahead of time. It implies much more. You knowing this beforehand. But look at Acts 2.22. And we're trying to answer this objection that, well, God foreordains because he foreknows. Foreknowledge means loving ahead of time, but it means something more. Acts 2.22 Men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested, attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So he's talking about God's eternal purpose of salvation, that plan of redemption, which included Jesus going to the cross. It says here, he was delivered up by the foreknowledge of God. So God foreknew that these Jews were going to react in such a way to his ministry that they would be jealous, that they would want to kill him, that they would kill him. God knew that for him. So, so that's why he planned it. No, that's not what it says. He is delivered up by the predetermined plan. And the, the things are parallel. The things are synonymous. For God to have a predetermined plan, of course he knew it was going to happen because he predetermined it. This is what the verse is saying. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And so, and there are other verses I have here in my notes which I'm, I'm not going to go to because this is already clear. Now let's go back to Romans 8.29. Having this, these facts in view, all right, so foreknowledge. Knowledge means to have a special relationship with in, in, when it's talking about people and God's relationship to people. It also can mean to have a predetermined plan that's going to happen. And so going back to Romans 8.29... 
For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge. That sounds kind of familiar here. Whom he foreknew. Now notice, what is it that God foreknew? And here's where that uh, lady in my church when I was growing up, where her theory, her interpretation of this verse totally falls apart. It doesn't say whose choice of him he foreknew. Is that what your Bible says? Whose choice of him he foreknew, he predestined. No, it says whom. It's their persons that he knows ahead of time. Their persons. It's talking about relationship. This fits the pattern of what God had said about Israel in the Old Testament. You only have I known. Well, he knew everything about everybody else in terms of facts. But it was only Israel that he had this special relationship with. Whom he foreknew. Whom he had a special relationship with. Looking ahead of time. He was going to have that relationship with them. These are the ones he predestined. And so it's their persons that he knows. And it's rooted in divine purpose from eternity, not just a mere knowledge of facts. And that's what the word predestined or foreordained means, going back to Acts chapter 2. Foreordained, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge. That's what we see here. And so when we see that God foreknew them, this is talking about, as some have put it, love before time. Love before time. And if you just stop for a moment and meditate on that, who am I? That God looking ahead in his eternal, inscrutable purposes looked at this little red-haired guy and said, I'm going I'm to love that one. <laughs> Wait a minute. You know what I did? You know how I, who I am? Yeah, he knew. And in spite of all that, he said his love. And you can think, you put your own name in there. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he, in his eternal purposes, going back before time, even before creation, before the worlds were in existence, Said his love on this one, that one. You're the people of God. That's amazing grace. It's marvelous. So, parallel passages again. We've looked at some of these. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That doesn't talk anything about knowing their choice of him. It just knows his choice of us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1 and 2, uh, we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Yes, but that's not, well, he knows he's going to choose us. It's he set his love on us according to the foreknowledge of God. So I hope that that answers that objection. And maybe I'll just pause here and say, okay, any, any further objection to that objection? It, are you satisfied from the scriptures that when it says, 
chosen according to the whom he foreknew he predestined. It's marvelous. It's not a doctrine as you come to understand it, to oppose and fight against is something horrible, something marvelous. And I trust that you all see that. Another objection, though, since nobody objects to my answering of that objection, is that it makes God unjust. And that was my answer to my friend back my first year in college. Uh, that, that's not right. That's not just. Yeah, I'll take these. I'll trade. Thank you, Courtney. Much better. Oh, now I can see you. All right. It makes God unjust. And to say that God is unjust, that's blasphemy. And so even the thought, okay, God chooses this one and not that one. Not because of anything, because this person's better than that person. No merits, nothing that they've earned. Well, wait a minute. Of course I'm elect, because I'm better. Well, you see this, even this cry of making God unjust is somehow thinking, God was right to choose me. <laughs> God was right to save me because of who I am. There's something very proudful even in the objection itself. But this is exactly the cry that Paul answers in Romans chapter 9. So if you're still there in Romans 8, turn over the page to Romans 9. And Paul is here in this passage defending the doctrine of election. I think we looked at this passage last week. Uh, the example of, uh, first of all, um, Isaac and Ishmael, and then uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, verse 13. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice, unfairness, if you want to put it that way, with God, is there? And Paul's answer is the only answer we can give. May it never be. And my own personal translation of the Greek here is, no way. All right? That's what Paul says. No way. It can't be that God would be unjust. For, and then he goes on to explain, for he says to Moses, I will have justice on whom I will have justice. That would be unfair. That would be unjust. To give some justice and some injustice. No, no, no. But that's not what he says. For I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it's not a matter of justice when we're talking about election. It's a matter of mercy. It's not a matter of what you deserve. It's a matter of mercy. That's what he's talking about here. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then... It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, 
why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And it sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? Well, God says, okay, I'm going to show mercy on this one. This one, I'm not going to show mercy. In fact, I'm going to harden him. Well, that means he's going to let him go on in his own way, which is hardening him, right? He's not hardening him because, well, he's, he's, a, he's this soft, malleable, you know, nice guy, and I'm going to make him tough. No, <laughs> look at Pharaoh. <laughs> is that really the case? <laughs> Pharaoh is a pretty tough guy to begin with. I'm going to harden him. I have mercy on him. Well, that, 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 that does, well that's, that's, if you were Pharaoh, you could say, well, you know, look, hey, I got no, I got no way out of this. Why is he going to find fault with me? I can't resist his will. It's God's fault that I'm this way. That's kind of the objection, isn't it? Why is he going to find fault? Who resists his will? That's his will. Now, that would be a kind of hyper-Calvinist or even a, an Islamic. By the way, Muslims believe that Allah is sovereign in a way, but it's kind of a blind fate sort of sovereignty. But that's not the case here. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? Now, what's the answer? The answer is this. God's God. Who are you? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Nor does, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump? One vessel for honorable use and another for common use. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So it's a matter of mercy. If God's justice were partial, that would be one thing. I'm going to give justice to you, but I'm not going to give you justice. That'd be one thing. That would be unjust. And Paul says, no way. But if God shows mercy on one and not on another, are you going to twist God's arm and say, no, you're going to have to give mercy to everybody? Well, beggars come to your door. Now, it doesn't happen in the U.S. so much, but it did happen in the Philippines. Beggars come to your door. Now, maybe you're in a, having a good day, and so you give one beggar uh, a T-shirt, an old T-shirt, and you say, okay, or you can take this. And the next beggar comes to your house, and you say, you know, like his looks, or for whatever reason, you say, sorry. Well, is he going to say, well, you gave him something. What about me? Well, he might say that. But you could say, it's my prerogative. I can show mercy here. That doesn't mean I have to show. If you showed mercy to everybody, you would be bankrupt pretty quick. God wouldn't be. <laughs> but we would be. We show mercy to whom we would show mercy. If the president pardons one criminal, does that mean I have to pardon everybody? Let all the jails be emptied? You'd say, I hope not. It's God's prerogative, and this is what Paul is saying, to show mercy on whom he will show mercy. And this whole objection, it's not fair. 
I forget where I read it or heard it. But here's the question that comes. Okay, you want God to be fair? You're really asking for fairness? You're really asking for justice? You're really asking to get what you deserve? <laughs> uh, well, uh, you put it that way. Because <laughs> to be honest, what do you deserve? I was a wandering sheep. I would not be controlled. God said, thou shalt not. And I said, but I'm going to do it anyway. God said, thou shalt. And I said, nee. what's that? Rebellion against a benevolent, kind God who gives you life and breath and all things. And you throw it back in his face. You want justice? You want fairness? Well, God will be fair. You can count on that. And you will not, and if you're still in rebellion against God, consider this. You will not be one more moment in hell than you deserve. That ought to scare you. But thanks be to God. There's forgiveness with him that he might be feared. Thanks be to God that he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Now, there's another objection that didn't make it into the handout, but someone asked me this question last week, and I thought it was worth including. What about those who are not predestined for salvation, those who are not uh, elect? What about those? What does the Bible say about them? Well, here in Romans chapter 9, we do read about them. It says, what if... What if, verse 22, God, though willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Yes, when you have those who are elect, you have this group and God chooses some out of that group for salvation. Now, it's automatic, isn't it, that there are some who are not chosen? And those who object to this, what they would call a doctrine of double predestination, uh, which they call reprehensible and, and horrible doctrine of double predestination, it's, it's, let's just be honest. God chooses some. It's obvious that there's some he did not choose. Whatever you want to call it, passing over, whatever term you use, it, it's automatic when some are chosen for salvation that some are chosen not for salvation. And this passage tells us they're chosen for wrath. Now, that's not because, well, I'm going to have wrath on this one. He didn't do anything yet, but I'm going to really get him. No, no, no. It's because of their sin. Don't ever take sin out of the picture there. Vessels of wrath, yes. But they're sinful vessels. They're wandering sheep that didn't ever come to the Father's fold. They're still hard-headed. They're still rebellious. They're still determined to go their own way. And so, yes, but what do we think about that? Is this, is this God then some kind of harsh God who, well, I'm going to have mercy on this. One. I'm going to show kindness here, but boy, look out over there. 
Let's think about what God says about those people. Ezekiel chapter 33 gives us a clue, uh, just a peek into the heart, if I can put it that way, of God when it comes to those who are, yes, determined for, prepared for destruction. Ezekiel 33, and this is written, of course, to Israel. But remember that all Israel was not Israel. With many of them, God was not well pleased. They fell in the wilderness. And even in Ezekiel's day, uh, you think of the nation that went into captivity in Babylon and those who remained behind. There were, there were, it was not a pretty picture. They were condemned because of their sin. And what does God say about them here in Ezekiel 33 and verse 11? Going back to verse 10. Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you have spoken, saying, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? How shall we then live? Well, yeah, but their transgressions and their sins are upon them. Don't, don't leave that out of the picture. But what does God still say to them? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? I remember a very moving sermon preached by a shield blaze back in the Grover Cleveland Junior High on this text. Why will you die? Why will you die? God doesn't take pleasure in it. Yes, it's his work. Yes, there are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. But as the prophet calls it, it's a strange work. He doesn't take delight in it. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. There's mercy. There's severity. There's judgment. But God does not take pleasure. And this is not just sort of, well, you know, this is an experience of God's heart gives us a peek, if I can put it that way, into the heart of the Almighty. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so if you're here this morning and you're saying, well, you know, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. I'm, I'm stuck here. You know, it's, who resists his will? I'm, I'm going to hell. I'm going to enjoy it. No, you're not. The way of the transgressor is hard. And the end of the transgressor is worse. And here you have God saying to you, why will you die? What answer can you give? Well, because my sin's so much fun? <laughs> Come on. You wake up with a hangover. The girl's pregnant. You got a mess. Sin brings misery. Why will you die? What good reason? Well, God predetermined. How do you know? God predetermined you'd be here hearing his word today. And the call of mercy. Is that pornography? Is that whatever sin you, in, you entertain? Is that worth it? Is that a good enough reason to go to hell? 
Why will you die, God says, to you? Why will you die? Don't do it. Come to the Lord Jesus. Well, further objections, I can take these up a little more briefly. Makes preaching unnecessary. Why do you preach? You know, if God has determined who's going to be saved, well, that's what apparently, reportedly, somebody said to William Carey when he was proposing to go to India. It was purportedly said to him, uh, well, if God's going to save him, he'll do it his own way. You know, if God's going to save them. You don't have to go there. Well, how does God save? We read 1 Corinthians 1, 21, Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Well, those people in India, that's their problem. No, no, no. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, of preaching, to save those who believe. That's why we preach. We want to see people saved. We want to see God's people built up, yes. One of the ends of preaching is salvation. Preaching and prayer. Why do we have prayer meeting every week? Well, a lot of reasons. One of them is this. First Thess 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brethren, pray for us. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly. Literally, run and be glorified. We pray that the word will run, get legs, and go throughout this world. I was talking to somebody Wednesday night about when I first came to Trinity Baptist Church prayer meeting way back in 1978. And I was thrilled because we weren't praying for grandma's big toe and, and uh, so-and-so's garage door that was broken. We were praying for the gospel around the world. Having prayer letters read from missionaries. From It was wonderful because that's what we're here for. We pray that the word will run and be glorified. And that's one means of seeing the gospel prevail. God's work to save sinners uses means. And that's what we're doing here. It's not useless. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Furthermore, one last objection. It takes away motive for human effort. Again, Kesara, Sarah, whatever will be, well, God's going to do his thing. And so we, you know, it's, we can't help. We can't hurt. It's just whatever it's going to be. No. What did um, God say to Paul? I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, was Paul attacked? Yeah. <laughs> not, not there, perhaps, but yeah, he got opposition. But God said to him, you keep going, Paul, in spite of opposition, because I've got many people in this city. You know, go to Manila, it's the other side of the world. I don't speak of the language. Now I do, but back then I didn't. How are you going to reach these people? What hope do you have in South Korea that there's going to be a church planted in Yosu? I've got many people. It's not, well, you're a skilled guy. You, you know how to do this. You know, you, you went through three years, back in my day, in the academy. You got this. No, 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 no. God has many people. And that's our hope and we preach. When we send missionaries around the world, your labor is not in vain in the Lord because he's got his people. 
And so when we preach, when we evangelize, when we go to Morristown, to the square, or wherever it may be, God has his people. And he's going to save them. Yes, here in these United States, with this culture as dark as it is, you think, man, it's hopeless here in this country. Maybe in the Philippines you'll plant a church, but New Jersey? Forget about it. God has his people. And so it does not take away motive for human effort. William Carey, Adoniram Judson, those early missionaries were believers in the doctrine of election. And they all the more labored. Apparently, it was reported to me that John Calvin himself sent missionaries throughout Europe. John Calvin sent missionaries. Why? Because he believed God had a people. God's sovereign and able to save even now Europe that is in the darkness of Roman Catholicism. Yes, God can save. Well, as we apply this then, as we close up, and, and well, we'll have time for questions sometime, but let me give these applications before uh, I throw it open if there's any time left for questions. First of all, theologically, election is a fountain of all kinds of blessings of salvation. You go to Ephesians chapter 1, and it begins there. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world for what? Adoption, uh, for redemption, that is, our sins are paid for and we're set free. All of these blessings of salvation begin with, we are chosen in him. <laughs> it's not because of me, it's, it's because of him. And so we begin here, theologically, if he didn't choose us, you know where you'd be? You wouldn't be here. Or <laughs> you'd be here, it'd be kind of like, all right, I got to go to church again. He chose us in him. These blessings flow out of God's work of election. Theologically, we should be grateful. Personally, it's a, a matter of comfort. If salvation's rooted in the election, Yes, I to the end shall endure, as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. We have eternal security. I don't usually use that phrase, but we, we have confidence. Not because I know I'm, I'm holding on well. I've got this. No, <laughs> he's got me. If he chose me in eternity past, he brought me thus far. By grace that I've come thus far, and grace will lead me home. There's great comfort in this doctrine of election. But then there's also an exhortation. The doctrine of election does not lead to complacency. Now, I, I knew a man in the Philippines who claimed to be elect, but he didn't go to church. He thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm elect. I'm, I'm, I'm good for eternity. But he didn't live it. Dear friend, there's no confidence, there's no comfort there's no assurance in the doctrine of election if you're not following Christ. Let's look at, at 2 Timothy 2.19. Let's look at what this doctrine of election should lead to. 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul says, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Okay, I'm his, I'm good. Wait a minute. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. You see, these two go hand in hand. I'm his, I'm going to abstain from wickedness. I'm his, I'm going to follow the good shepherd. 
I love the shepherd's voice. I'm going to follow him. See, if you're his, it's not a call to complacency. It's not a call to carelessness. It's a call to follow. Ephesians 1 again, we were chosen in him for what? To be holy and blameless. Not to be careless. And so if you're his, here this morning, follow him. Live for him. Be a trophy of his grace. For evangelism, this does not stifle evangelism, but all the more gives us hope and motivation. God has a people. And so, you know, I'll be honest with you. Coming back to these United States from the Philippines, th this is a somewhat discouraging society. We, we, I mean, okay, I heard somebody say that they didn't like to call this a day of small things, but to be honest with you, compared to where I was in the Philippines, where we had... We're seeing churches planted. This is not uh, exactly an encouraging society that we live in. But God's still on his throne. God still has his people. And God can still flip this thing around just like that. The wind blows where it wills. Who's to say the wind's not going to blow in New Jersey today? This gives us hope and encouragement and motivation. God has a people. He's going to call those people. They're going to be saved. How? Preaching, prayer, your witness. He's going to use means. And that's you. That's us. Don't be discouraged. Continue. Press on. All right. Yeah, there's opposition. Uh, has God told me as many people in Montville? No, he hasn't told me that. But he's told me that he has people. And that ought to encourage us. And then, lastly, again, this is, this is your only hope. Don't ask the question, am I elect? Am I not elect? Am I, you know, are you going to get out the, the daisy and pluck off the petals? I'm elect, I'm not elect. I'm elect, I'm not elect. No, 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 no. That's not the way to go about it. The way to go about it is to say, well, God has told me in his word, he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Well, maybe I'm not elect. Well, but God does. God's told you. And he said to you, why will you die? Can you answer the question? Well, because I'm not elect. How do you know? You don't know. So get that off the field. Scratch that. That's not an issue. The issue is, are you a sinner? Yeah. Do you need a savior? Yeah. Who's the savior? Jesus. How do you come to him? Turn from sin and trust in him. That's the issue. That's all there is. That's what you look at. And that says you, whatever your name is, you fill in the blank. God does not delight in your death, but rather that you turn today and be saved. What are you going to do about it? Why will you die? No good reason. No good reason. Absolutely no good reason. Don't blame God, because here it is today. He's told you. All who come to me, I'll never cast them out. That's you. If you come. Nobody has ever come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be cast out. Nobody. You won't find them in hell. They're in glory.
they've already left this world. Well, I don't see any time left for questions, so hold on to your questions. You can submit them to me and, you know, write them down, email me or whatever, and we'll seek to answer them. But um, that will come next week. We're going to, Lord willing, have a report on Hong Kong in the adult Bible class. And the week after that, I'll be preaching in the Philippines, Lord willing. So see you next month. Um, well, I'll be here, Lord willing, next week too, but um, not in the Sunday school class. So let's come to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bless your name that you looked upon us, unworthy, hell-deserving sinners, and had mercy. And we have no claim upon that mercy. We do not deserve it. We did not earn it. But you had mercy. It's not of us running or willing. It's you having mercy. And we do cry to you, even as you have said, that you do not delight in the death of the wicked. And we would lay before you our concern for our loved ones, our children, grandchildren, parents, relatives, friends, those who are here with us perhaps in this building, those watching online, those who would never darken the door in their own will. Oh, Lord, have mercy. You can change hearts. You can create soul thirst. You can arouse in the heart, in the mind, a desire to know you and to turn from this wicked world being fed up with it. Oh, Lord, do this great work. Use your word. Hear our prayers. Use our testimony. We ask you, we plead. But we plead in hope. Because you have many people. And so we ask these things with praise and thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.